0: Bible reading, you'll find on page 277, if you wish to follow, in your Bibles, or you can see it on the screen. And it's Samuel, chapter 12. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me, and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here because I am going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place, But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you, so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you... And the king who reigns over you, follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and the same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord, by failing to pray for you and i will teach you the way that is good and right but be sure to fear the lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart consider what great things he has done for you yet if you persist in doing evil both you and your king will perish
1: Our second reading comes from chapter 15, which you can find on page 281. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go... Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Tuleim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Samuel went to the si- Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, "'Go away, leave the Amalekites "'so that I do not destroy you along with them. "'For you shown kindness to all the Israelites "'when they came up out of Egypt. "'So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. "'Then Saul attacked the Amalekites "'all the way from Havilah to Shur "'near the east border of Egypt. "'He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive "'and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword.'" But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. That he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. that he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord." But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbours, the one better than you. He he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of the people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as the sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again Although Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel.
2: Well, it is wonderful to be here this morning, and it is a real privilege to be able to worship our God together. I listened to Luke Wisely's sermon from last week, and he started things out by saying that he hoped his American accent was tolerable. Uh, and, and I hear, I think he got a little bit of grief for his American accent. So I, I likewise say, I hope my American accent is tolerable this morning. Uh, and I also want to say, though, Trinity Church, you, you guys, uh, God has had mercy on you. Because Luke and I, our, our American accents are more or less unaffected American accents. If you were to walk into a church on Sunday morning in my home state of Texas, uh, what, you hear, what you would hear would be a little bit different. I'd start out with a really strong, howdy, y'all. Sure is good to be here with you this morning. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's see what Saul's gotten himself into. <laughs> so, just be thankful that's not how this is going to go this morning. <laughs> Now, let let me pray for us. We'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for this time now that we can worship you together and we can receive instruction from you. Please open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us. Please speak through me that I would say your words. And as we read your scripture, we pray that you would encourage, challenge, and convict us. And we pray that you would be glorified by our response. Amen. Well, before getting into chapter 15, it would be good to remind ourselves of just how the book of 1 Samuel has shaped up to this point in the narrative. And, you know, what what is the book about, and how does Saul's story fit within the book of 1 Samuel? And after that, we'll do a flyover of chapters 12 to 14, and then see how we've gotten to where we're at in chapter 15. One of the primary purposes of the book of 1 Samuel is to present Yahweh as the true king. Of course, the idea that Yahweh is the true king is not a new one. It's an old idea going back to uh, the beginning of Israel's life as God's people back in the book of Exodus. But by the time we get to the book of 1 Samuel, that idea is a bit passe, So from the very beginning of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 3, we see the Lord referred to as the Lord Almighty. Some translations render this as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, and it is a title that speaks to the Lord's kingship, that he is a king who is sovereign. He is a king who goes out to do battle for his people and against his enemies. It's a title that gets used again and again through the book. We'll see it in chapter 15 today. And the Lord's kingship is also expressed very early on in Hannah's prayer in chapter two, in her song. The Lord, she expresses the Lord's kingship over all of creation when she sings in verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. You see, the execution of judgment was a king's task. And of course, the Lord is not just the king of Israel. He, Hannah sings, executes judgment to the ends of the earth. He is the king of all creation. But if you recall from last week in Luke's sermon from chapter 8, the people of Israel asked for a king to rule over them, a king to fight their battles. And their desire for a human king was a rejection of Yahweh as their king. And this is why it is so important to the author of 1 Samuel that we know who the true king is, because Israel had forgotten. They foolishly rejected Yahweh's kingship. Now, connected to that theme of Yahweh's kingship is his sovereignty. The Lord is sovereign over all of creation, people, kings, and nations. And this is a theme that permeates the book, and it permeates Hannah's song in chapter 2. God is sovereign, and nothing can thwart his purposes. We see this work itself out through 1 Samuel, whether in the birth of Samuel Uh, or in the consequences foretold to Eli and his sons and those coming to pass, or in the desecration of Dagon's idol, or in the Lord's attacks against the Philistines. And flowing on from those first two themes, Yahweh is king, Yahweh is sovereign, is our last theme, the right response to a sovereign king is faithful obedience. This is the imperative in the book of Samuel. Be faithful to Yahweh, your king. In some ways, the book of 1 Samuel is a book of case studies in faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And as we'll see today, Saul's narrative shows us the consequences of unfaithfulness in the king. Contrasting with the faithfulness of his son Jonathan in chapter 14, and ultimately contrasting with God's choice of king, David. So with that, let's get stuck into the text. In chapters 12 to 14, Saul has just taken his place as the king of Israel, and unfortunately, everything goes downhill from there. In chapter 12, Samuel reminds Israel of her history and of the Lord's faithfulness in the past, how the Lord delivered his people from Egypt and settled them in the promised land, how Israel would turn away from the Lord and would reap the consequences, and how the Lord would send judges to his people to deliver them from the oppression of other nations. In short, when Israel was faithful to the Lord, blessing followed. When Israel was disobedient and turned away from the Lord, the natural result was foreign oppression. Samuel's point in all of this is essentially to say, You've made a huge mistake. Israel's desire for a human king is not in the best interest of Israel. History clearly demonstrates this. And it is not what God wants for his people. And Samuel's assessment of the current situation and his presentation of Saul is especially telling. If you're in chapter 12, look at verses 12 to 13 where Samuel says... But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, and Samuel is here recounting the events of chapter 11, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, and listen to how Samuel puts this, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Subtlety was not Samuel's strong suit. We have every right at this point in the narrative to expect that this will be disastrous for Israel. However, Samuel does offer a path forward. In the next two verses, he says, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, And if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now, can we just reflect for a moment on the unparalleled patience of our God and on his unconditional love? He would have every right to reject Israel. They've rejected him. Or he could just wash his hands of them, leave them to their own devices. They're going to mess up sooner or later. Israel always does. But instead, even in the midst of them rejecting him as their king, he provides a path for them to live within his providence. So what is that path? What is required? That they, both the people and the king, fear the Lord and serve and obey him. If they remain faithful to him, all will be well. If not, they will reap the consequences. And before we move on, we should draw attention to a key phrase in both verse 14 and verse 15 obey him or obey the Lord. I like what the Lexham English Bible does with this phrase. It translates it as, listen to the voice of Yahweh. Listen to the voice of Yahweh. This means obey, but that word listen is important. It's going to come back up in Saul's story. So chapters 13 and 14 then detail Saul's decline. In chapter 13, Saul leads Israel against the Philistines, but Israel is quickly overwhelmed. Saul, in his desperation, offers a burnt offering to the Lord, but his intentions are not right. And Saul does at least two things wrong with his sacrifice in chapter 13. First, he demonstrates a lack of trust that Yahweh would fight for his people. He lets fear of the Philistines overwhelm him despite Samuel's charge in chapter 12 that the king and the people fear the Lord. We'll see a stark contrast to this lack of trust in chapter 14. Second, Saul's offering is not an act of devotion to God, but rather, like Luke said last week when he was talking about the Ark of the Covenant being used as a good luck charm, uh, it's being used to twist God's arm, to try to manipulate God. So Saul does not trust Yahweh, and he attempts to control Yahweh. And in verse 13, Samuel condemns Saul for his foolish and his disobedience. And as a result, the Lord will not establish a dynasty for Saul. Chapter 14 begins with Saul's son, Jonathan, going against the Philistines, backed up only by his armor bearer. And any reasonable person would look at that story, Jonathan going against a Philistine encampment, just him and his armor bearer, and would say, how stupid, right? Like one guy and his armor bearer, an army does not make. You know, how is he going to survive against the Philistine outpost? And under normal circumstances, yeah, that's pretty dumb. But this is no ordinary circumstance, and Jonathan knows that. So check out what Jonathan says if you're in chapter 14, verse 6, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Here is what the fear of the Lord looks like. This is what faith in Yahweh looks like. Saul had men at his command and Yahweh on his side, but he feared the Philistines more. Jonathan is but one man with an armor bearer, but he knows who decides the outcome of the battle. I'm reminded again of Hannah's song in chapter 2. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. By God's help, Jonathan prevails over the Philistines, sends them in a panic, and paves the way to victory for Saul's forces. And if only that were the end of chapter 14. In verse 24, Saul makes a foolish oath, and he says, "'Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies.'" There are two issues with this curse that Saul invokes. First, he's probably instituting a fast for the same reason that he offered a sacrifice in chapter 13 to try to manipulate the Lord. Second, not feeding your army is a really bad idea. As the story goes on, there are two consequences of Saul's ridiculous fast. The first is that the army is so hungry that once they defeat the Philistines... They kill the Philistines' animals, and then they eat them without draining the blood, which is a clear violation of Leviticus 17. It's a violation of the law to eat food with blood still in it. And Saul's foolish fast leads to a whole army sinning against the Lord. Second, Jonathan, Saul's son, he didn't know about the curse. So he finds himself walking through the woods. He comes across some honey, and he eats it. And this leads Saul to almost killing Jonathan in order to fulfill the curse. And it is only because of the army's intervention on behalf of Jonathan and their contesting of Saul's oath that Jonathan lives. Just pause there for a second. The army contested their king's oath. The army thwarted their king. The king is supposed to lead the army, not the other way around so this moment should raise massive red flags for us. Saul is not a good leader. Chapters 13 and 14, they tell the story of a king who makes foolish decisions, who does not obey Yahweh, and who does not lead the people well. This brings us to chapter 15, where Saul makes his final mistake. As one commentator writes, In chapter 13, Obedience, was the stone on which Saul stumbled. In chapter 15, it is the rock that crushes him. So chapter 15 begins with Samuel giving Saul a directive from the Lord. In verses 1 through 3, Samuel says, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen, there's that word again, listen, now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Samuel is clear from the beginning. As the Lord's prophet, he has the authority to bring the Lord's message to the king, He tells Saul to listen to the message of the Lord. And remember from chapter 12, listening to the Lord is a non-negotiable. It is required of the king and of Israel. So through Samuel, the Lord commands Saul to battle against the Amalekites. Now, why does the Lord command this? Who are these Amalekites? Well, if you were to go back to Exodus 17, just after the Lord has uh, redeemed his people out of Egypt, the Amalekites attack the Israelites, God gives his people victory, but a bad taste is left in our mouths when it comes to the Amalekites because they didn't just attack God's people, but they did it in a dishonorable way. Uh, the Amalekites, they attacked, they attacked stragglers at the rear of the procession. Uh, they attacked Israelites who were tired and weary. Uh, it was not... It was not a battle with battle lines. It was taking advantage of God's people. And so because of this, God is not done with the Amalekites. In Deuteronomy 25, Moses says, When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses prophesies that God will mete out justice to the Amalekites, and that time is now. Now, before moving on, we should briefly talk about the extent of destruction that God commands. In verse 3, the Lord says, Totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This is a, a difficult word to hear. But there are a couple things to note. First, in the Old Testament, this is known as the ban. And the ban, uh, essentially, is the devotion of something to God. It signifies that the thing devoted is the exclusive possession of Yahweh, and it is therefore removed from the human sphere and human use. So when the object being devoted is an enemy, this typically means their destruction. And the ban is a practice that acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty over everything. And crucially, it is a practice that only the Lord can command. So Israel can't just go and devote things uh, willy-nilly. They have to uh, be commanded to do it by the Lord. The second thing to note is that when the ban is commanded, the language used is hyperbolic, not literal. The point of saying put to death men and women, children and infants is not to condone the killing of noncombatants, something we don't see Israel doing, but rather to convey the totality intended. The victory should be decisive. We know this is the case because when the ban is commanded throughout the Old Testament and carried out by Israel, those nations that were totally destroyed crop back up. Even the Amalekites, they will crop back up later in 1 Samuel. Uh, there are also times like with Rahab and her family in Jericho when people are not destroyed, but they are rescued So all of this to say, the witness of the Old Testament clearly indicates that the Lord is not commanding genocide here, but is using typical hyperbolic war rhetoric to command complete victory over the enemy. So Saul goes out and he battles the Amalekites, and verse 7 tells us that he attacked them all the way from Havilah to Shur. And so far, Saul is demonstrating that he listened to the word of the Lord. He went throughout the region, south and southwest of Israel, and attacked God's enemy. But we then see in verses 8 and 9 that Saul does not obey the Lord. The Lord commanded Saul in verse 3 not to spare the Amalekites, but in verse 9, Saul and the army spare their king, Agag, The Lord commanded Saul in verse 3 to totally destroy everything, but in verse 9 we are told that they were unwilling to totally destroy everything and instead kept the best livestock. Saul directly disobeys the Lord by sparing Agag and by keeping the wealth. And remember, the ban stipulates that everything belongs to Yahweh and it was removed from the human sphere. It's removed from human use. So because of this, Not only does Saul privilege wealth over obedience, but by not destroying the best livestock, he is committing theft. He is taking what belongs to God. He has interpreted God's command in a way that suits him instead of remaining faithful. It's easy to criticize Saul here. He is clearly not listening to the Lord. He's choosing to interpret the Lord's command through his own lens, But the point of this text is not just to demonstrate Saul's sin, but to force us to reckon with our own unfaithfulness, to repent of those times when we take God's good commands and ignore them or reinterpret them. Between the witness of Scripture, the community of believers, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the example set by Jesus, we know what God expects of us. We know what God requires. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know where we have failed. We know where we interpret God's commands to suit us. So use this opportunity to learn from Saul's mistakes. Inspect yourself, and if there's unfaithfulness, if you have reinterpreted God's commands to better suit you, then take the opportunity to repent, to deny yourself, and to follow your king. The rest of the chapter deals with the fallout of Saul's disobedience. The Lord speaks to Samuel and regrets having made Saul king because Saul has turned away from him and has not carried out his instructions. The Lexham English Bible shows the link between verse 11 and verse 1 a little more clearly. In verse 1, it has Samuel saying, Listen to the word of the Lord. And in verse 11, God's saying, Saul has not carried out my word. The very thing that he was instructed to do from the beginning, he has failed to do. So the next day, Samuel goes out to meet Saul, but he can't find him. Samuel is informed that Saul, amazingly, is off building a monument in his own honor. Now, it was common practice in the ancient Near East for kings to commemorate their victories by creating monuments. But Israel is not just any nation in the ancient Near East. If anyone is to receive honor for this victory, it is the Lord, not a human king. Hannah's song from chapter 2 again comes to mind. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord humbles and he exalts. It is not by strength that one prevails. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And if we go back to Exodus, when the Israelites battled the Amalekites that first time, what did Moses do after the battle? He didn't build a monument in his own honor. He builds an altar to Yahweh and he attributes the victory to the Lord. But Saul is no Moses. So Samuel finds Saul, and Saul greets him by saying, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions, or I have carried out the word of the Lord. We know this is not the case. Not only do we know it from the story itself, but just two verses earlier, the Lord says the exact opposite thing. Saul is either incredibly incredibly ignorant, or just willfully self-deceived. Samuel, of course, knows the truth. Also, Samuel's not an idiot. If Saul carried out the word of the Lord, then what are those sheep and those cattle doing back there? Come on, Saul, you could have tried a little bit harder than that. My my 20-month-old is better at hiding things than you are. At this point, Saul realizes his error and immediately repents. Or that's what should have happened. Instead, Saul digs himself into a deeper hole. In verse 15, he says, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. And there are three issues here. First, instead of taking responsibility as the king, he blames the soldiers. It wasn't him, it was the soldiers they spared the livestock, is a terrible truth about the sinful condition that we are quicker to blame others for our sin than to repent. Second, Samuel refers to the Lord as your God, not my God, or even our God. Saul is distancing himself from the Lord, which is not a good sign. And third, he apparently thinks that sparing the livestock to sacrifice to the Lord somehow makes the disobedience better. But a sacrifice is something that comes from one's own possession and is then handed over to God. But remember that the practice of the ban is in effect here, and the ban regards everything as God's possession already. To take the livestock even for sacrifice is to steal from God. It would be like if, if after the service today someone were to steal my iPad and then give it to me for my birthday. That's not how gifts work. <laughs> like it was already my iPad. This is not how sacrifices work. So all of this demonstrates the unfortunate side effect of sinfulness it blinds us to our own sin. It is a mercy to be confronted in our sin, and to be given an opportunity to repent. When that happens to you, don't be like Saul. Don't allow yourself to be blinded by sinfulness. Accept rebuke. When done in love and in Christ, it is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to each other in the church. In verse 17, Samuel makes two points to Saul trying to correct his perspective. The first is that though Saul may have considered himself insignificant when he became king, he needs to reckon with the fact that he is the king. He has a responsibility to lead the people. The second point is that the Lord anointed him king of Israel. And then as recounted in verse 18, it was the Lord who sent him on the mission against the Amalekites. The Lord is the authority. So, Given this, as Samuel asks in verse 19... Why didn't Saul obey the Lord? Or some translations put it, why didn't you listen to the voice of the Lord? This takes us back to the beginning of chapter 15 when Saul is instructed to listen to the Lord. And it takes us back to chapter 12 where Samuel charges the people and the king to listen to the voice of the Lord. Saul has failed to listen. He has failed to do the one thing he was supposed to do. In addition, Samuel accuses him of pouncing on the plunder, of greed, taking what belongs to the Lord. And lastly, he accuses Saul of doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that phrase, do evil in the eyes of the Lord, is not only used throughout the book of Judges to describe Israel's repeated sin and repeated departure from Yahweh, But it is this stock phrase in 1 and 2 Kings to describe the evil and failed kings of the northern and southern kingdoms. So Saul is grouped here with the likes of Nadab and Basha, Zimri, Omri, and most terribly, Ahab. Even if Saul's story is not quite over, in canonical perspective, there's no coming back from this. Despite Samuel's words, Saul does not relent. In verse 20, he says, But I did obey the Lord, or I did listen to the voice of the Lord. He is dead set on justifying himself instead of repenting. And then in verse 21, he again shifts the blame on his soldiers. And Samuel's response in verses 22 and 23 deserves quoting in full. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Offerings and sacrifices without obedience are pointless, The Lord doesn't need sacrifices, but He does require faithfulness, which starts with obedience. Saul's sin is likened to divination and idolatry because divination and idolatry are rejections of the Lord's authority. They stem from an unfaithful heart that doesn't listen to the Lord and instead gives ear to something other than Him. Without a heart devoted to God, we will not listen, we will not obey and we cannot please him. The most jarring part of Samuel's response to Saul is, of course, the end. Since Saul has rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected Saul as king. This demonstrates the principle that we saw back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, where the Lord says, those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Saul has demonstrated a lack of faithfulness time and again, and he has not done the one thing he was commanded to do. Listen to the voice of the Lord. So now he will suffer the consequences of unfaithfulness. His kingship will be taken from him. And it is only now, at this point, that Saul finally repents. But even in his repentance, he continues in his attempts to justify himself. And in so doing, makes a telling remark. In verse 24, he says, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Recall Samuel's charge in chapter 12, fear the Lord. Saul failed at this in chapter 13 when he feared the Philistines, and he fails here again when he fears his own army. Moreover, he gave in to them, or as some translations put it, I listened to their voice. He did not listen to the Lord's voice. Saul's repentance is too little, too late. And there's a feel to it that it has more to do with saving face and with saving his kingship than being right before God. Samuel reiterates God's decision that it is final. Saul's unfaithfulness has led to this. He was given opportunities to repent and to be obedient, but he failed. And so Samuel then finishes the command of the Lord by killing Agag. And then in verses 34 to 35, we're told that Samuel and Saul part ways. They do not meet each other again, and Samuel mourns for Saul. Two quick things to note here, and we'll finish. First, the parting of the ways is significant. This isn't just two friends who have a falling out and don't speak for a while. Saul is the king of Israel. He is still the king of Israel at this point. And Samuel, as a prophet, is the Lord's representative to the king. Samuel's break with Saul indicates God's departure from Saul. The current king of Israel no longer has a connection to the God of Israel. Second Samuel mourns for Saul, and this doesn't mean just that Samuel was really sad. It means that Samuel performed mourning rites, something that is done for the dead. So as far as Samuel and therefore the Lord was concerned, Saul was dead. As one commentator puts it, the mourning and the breach come long before their time. Saul is dead while he still lives. So there's much we have to learn from Saul's story, but it all comes back to the core message of 1 Samuel. Yahweh is the sovereign king, so listen to him and be faithful. As the sovereign king, he deserves our devotion and our obedience. And that starts with listening to him. Let's pray. Lord, we glorify you and we honor you as the sovereign king over all creation. We praise you because you are a good king, a righteous king. But Lord, our hearts are fickle. We are quick to replace you with other kings. We are quick to reinterpret your commands to suit our desires. We are often blind to our sin. We do not always listen to your word. So, Lord, we repent of our sin. We repent of those times when we do not honor you as the true king. And we thank you for your mercy and your patience and for the grace that you give us that we do not deserve. Please enable us by your spirit to listen to your word to obey and to be faithful for your glory and for our good. Amen.